Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. It's a pantomime that's going on in Glasgow, really. It's literally, look behind you, you know. And the whole tone of this debate is moralising, scaring people, and I'm afraid the Prime Minister was absolutely the prime culprit of all that so far in Glasgow. If you wanted to get Donald Trump re-elected, you would go about it exactly the way that Biden is right now. The great, the good and the greta. Oh, God. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So the COP26 summit's now well underway, and the hectoring hypocrisy and virtue signalling continue. <laughs> but don't worry, Planet Normal listeners. There's still another week to go, you lucky people. Plenty more summitry to come. Our political and media class is overwhelmingly convinced the world faces meltdown unless we lower our carbon emissions, reaching so-called net zero by 2050. Meanwhile, millions of ordinary men and women look on at proceedings in Glasgow and frown. Yes, there is broad understanding and acceptance among the UK population. We need to pollute less and pass on a better world to our children and grandchildren. But I'd say the silent majority of British people... Ordinary mums and dads, hard-working folk holding down jobs and running small businesses are thinking, fine, yes, but how much will it cost? And how can I afford an electric car, a heat pump for my house and ever-spiralling energy bills? How much of the burden of transitioning to a low-carbon, low-ambition economy will fall on me and my family when we're already struggling to make ends meet? Net zero by 2050 isn't just the aim, Alison. In this country, it's mandatory. Theresa May signed us up to hit this target by law. But with new petrol and diesel vehicles set to be banned by 2030 and gas-fired boilers to be replaced by expensive heat pumps as government estimates of the annual bill remain vague and non-committal, cost concerns among the general public are rising. There's plenty of news about this week, co-pilot. Your expo, Emmanuel Toyboy Macron, has just <laughs> been impounding our fishing vehicles. And in the US, the Republicans have just scored some notable election gains in Virginia as Joe Biden snoozes at the COP summit in Glasgow. So what do you make of events, Alison? The doom-mongering, the moralising, the chest-beating at COP26. We all want a cleaner world, but at what cost? You know, I've been in a very bad mood, Halligan, this week. This is really... Sound like you. It's un- <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> It's gradually been becoming like, where's that volcano exploding? Yes, the great, the good and the Greta. Oh, God. I mean, I did say in the column this week that, that the only thing that they got wrong at COP26 was they forgot to put the word keystone before it. <laughs> keystone COP26. I mean, it, it was full on slapstick in Glasgow, wasn't it? I mean, although it did make me very cross, you, you do have to laugh, Halligan. So we had Boris... Booming, the doomsday clock stands at one minute to midnight. Well, after 400 private jets flew into Glasgow Airport, the doomsday clock was standing at 20 seconds to midnight with all the emissions spewed out by the plutocrats and the world leaders and the celebrities. And somebody suggested that the celebrities arriving had caused more pollution than the total emissions of Scotland for the (laughs) entire year. Now, look... Many, many things to say, Halligan, but I suppose the thing that really did annoy me was this staggering lack of self-awareness amongst our ruling elite. They seem to be unembarrassable. If you or I were going to give a keynote speech at a conference on the environment, would we take the train or a bus or go on a tandem together? I mean, you know, if the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall had turned up on an electric tandem, that, that would have set the note. 
But essentially, I think what was coming through, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the message was we really should be doing more to reach net zero by 2050. But as was becoming very rapidly apparent by we, they mean poor people, other people who must make sacrifices and reduce their quality of life in order to offset the uninterrupted frictionless pleasures of the global elite. There was, a, I don't know if you saw some sort of banqueting hall with them all in, Liam. I mean, if, if Louis XIV had shown up in an electric <laughs> sedan chair, you wouldn't have been surprised. Meanwhile, I'll get this off my chest. Meanwhile, in Glasgow, the Christmas light switch on, which sort of lovely for families and little children was cancelled due to the COVID passports that Queen Nicola has imposed. But meanwhile, inside the conference centre, VIPs in the COP26 blue zone flew in from over 100 countries. They were not required to be vaccinated. They didn't have to quarantine and they didn't have to show a COVID passport. And as George Orwell said so brilliantly, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Is that about right, Halligan? I think there's a lot in what you say as ever co-pilot. There's an awful lot of hypocrisy and grandstanding and, and virtue signalling going on as, as everybody worships the child deity that is, is Greta Thunberg, <laughs> despite the fact that she's got absolutely no scientific qualifications whatsoever and spends barely any time in school. Look, I accept that we need to pollute less. I accept that it's a good thing to lower carbon emissions and wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Fossil fuels don't help the atmosphere. They're often to be found in difficult political places. Wars are fought over fossil fuels as they have been for decades and decades. And if we can use renewable energy, that's much, much better for everybody. But I don't think we're going to get there by endless sacrificing and moralizing and posh people on vacation from Davos (laughs) telling the plebs how immoral they are. We're going to do it by technology, Alison. And You are now seeing interesting technological changes happening. For me, a really big event of this week was when JCB, a company that you and I both admire a lot, which has been experimenting with hydrogen-driven heavy machinery. We've seen those prototypes. They're fully operational. They did a deal with an Australian mining titan called Andrew Forrest, known to his friends as as Twiggy, uh, <laughs> on the strength of the fact that he's anything but thin, <laughs> great Aussie humour, and Twiggy is turning round his for, his massive Fortescue Mining Group conglomerate into a huge producer of so-called green hydrogen. That's hydrogen where the electrolysis that you use to produce the hydrogen, splitting it from water, of course, is powered itself by renewable technology. So if you use solar and wind and other renewables to drive the electrolysis, you then get hydrogen, which you can burn in fuel cells. You can turn it into something called clean ammonia, which can be used to drive heavy plants, ships, even planes. We hope you can make steel. You can get those really hot temperatures that you can ordinarily only get using coking coal and so on. This is really interesting technology that lots of governments have ignored. And yet you've got JCB and Fortescue Mining Group, two really powerful entities betting millions of dollars of money that they've made on this hydrogen technology. So there's a a distribution deal between them where Fortescue will create the hydrogen and JCB will buy 10% of it and distribute it around the UK. That's, for my money, a better technology than using fossil fuels to generate electricity. And then you put the electricity in batteries that use rare earths that are found, in again, in difficult countries, not least China and the Central African Republic. And then you put these heavy batteries in your car. So a lot of the energy you're using is transporting around the battery. So That sounds all quite complex, but these are the debates we should be having, Alison. These kind of technological discussions, not banging our chests and saying, 
I shop at Waitrose, so I know more about climate change than you. And why aren't you recycling, Mr. Plumber? And when are you going to take out your horrible gas boiler and put in a heat pump, as I have in my holiday home in Southwold? I mean, this is the sort of level that we're at. It smacks of the Brexit debate to me. It's an awful lot of extremely wealthy, well-connected people convincing each other of how right they are and how wrong everyone else is. Technology will rescue us. Invention is the mother of necessity. If we decide, and I think we should decide, and I think we have decided that we need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, then it's tech that will do it, not making people that are struggling to make ends meet even poorer. And the whole tone of this debate is moralising, hectoring, scaring people. And I'm afraid the Prime Minister was absolutely the prime culprit of all that so far in Glasgow. I think that's right, Liam. I I thought it was really interesting that one point somebody made was you saw that Prime Minister Modi from India, Narendra Modi, they were under criticism for pledging it to reach net zero by 2070, which sounded a bit like we'll get back to you. But one thing that I picked up, Liam, was that... A two-word message, the second of which is off. <laughs> but I think, I suspect that Narendra Modi had been dragged to Glasgow with presumably many, many buckets of oil had smooth, slicked the path to bringing him to Glasgow. But a lot of the Asian countries apparently are very sensibly saying, well, it's all very well signing up to these commitments by 2030 or whatever our ludicrous mandatory commitment is. Their suggestion is, as you say, that we should do some practical things first and see how the warming is going. Now, coming back to your Southwold classes, not not that the co-pilot's ever chippy or anything, (laughs) not that he ever shows his Irish working class origins, but... No, I mean, listen to this. So one thing that really stood out for me. So we had the the, the massed forces of the BBC curling their lips about this Cumbrian mine they may be sinking, a, a coal mine. How revolting, a revolting. And Justin Rowlatt, who I know is one of your favourite people on the television, the BBC climate editor, basically questioning Boris about building this abomination, this mine in Cumbria. And he accused the Prime Minister of being Weasley in his answer his refusal to say on no account was me build a mine. Now, Liam, this is really your area, darling. I know you're very, very good at this, but this is Velma, co-pilot Velma's take on it. (laughs) Scooby. Scooby. We haven't had had that for weeks, have we? So this mine that we're all supposed to look down on from Hampstead, okay, this mine would make coking coal, which we need to turn iron into steel. And almost 20,000 people in the UK work in our steel industry. Some of them are my relatives, Liam, in South Wales. Now, either we get from this dreadful mine we're going to sink the necessary coking coal to make our own steel, or we import the steel from China, which would be a gigantic carbon footprint, or we import the coal from Poland or Russia, another giant carbon footprint. But oh no, Justin Rowlatt doesn't want us to have a mine, but he completely ignores. It's this absolute blithe hypocrisy, the inability to see the consequences of what you're saying. Do these people not want us to have steel? Do they not want us to build buildings out of steel? Are we going to be going back to wattle and daub. What is the plan? So it seems to me that, as you said, the virtue signalling is all very well. But in the meantime, while we develop all those technologies that you so eloquently outlined that JCB and so on are making, and that's got to be the way forward. But in the meantime, what are we going to do? This seems to me the absolute sticking point. And the other thing I thought, Liam, was that two things that I hadn't heard mentioned at the COP at all were nuclear power, which surely to goodness must must play a huge part in this green revolution. I think we're only, wind power at the moment is only responsible for 3% of UK electricity. That's a tiny fraction. Gas is giving us 52%. 3% from wind is nothing. And the other thing was overpopulation. The greatest thing you can do to stop environmental damage is to have fewer people on the planet. For every one child that you don't bring into the 
the world, you lose, you can deduct another whatever it is, 52 tonnes of carbon. But that's not mentioned. And I did slightly think that our prime minister, who's about to have his seventh child, may not be as alarmed by the climate emergency as you might think if he goes on overpopulating <laughs> his own world. What do you think? Is that a bit rude? <laughs> ever, ever, ever so slightly. <laughs> well, I'm serious. It's literally all these posh people with their vast families. You know, Stanley Johnson goes around. Stanley Johnson. The new Edwardians. Stanley Johnson is literally goes around saying, oh, we mustn't have so many dreadful people in the world. I mean, he's got six of them, hasn't he? It's, it's just, um, no, I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's the whole them and us thing that's making your co-pilot quite cross. You mentioned renewables. Renewables are increasingly a, quite a big share of our, our electricity mix. And I say that to highlight the fact that coal, which, you know, less than 10 years ago, coal was 30 to 40 percent of our electricity. It's now one to two percent of our electricity and falling rapidly all the time. But you do still with current technology still need coal for certain industrial processes, not least steelmaking, as you say, though the technology is changing. And I think it's ridiculous to focus on this one coal mine, which would be really useful to the local economy, because it's it's a transition. It's going to take time. We just returned to pre-pandemic levels of oil use across the world. Just yeah. earlier this week, figures came out, the world is now using 100 million barrels of oil a day, every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 100 million barrels. And a barrel of oil, I'm six foot four, a barrel of oil comes up to my waist and wow, I can barely okay. get my arms around it. Yeah, it's a big yeah. amount of oil. And that's going to go on for some time. You've got Western leaders begging Putin and the OPEC oil cartel to send more hydrocarbons to the Western world. And meanwhile, they're wanging on about one tiny coal mine in Cumbria that produces a very specific type of coal that is strategically very, very important. And if we didn't make the steel here, we'd make it somewhere else. Yeah. The important thing is to rapidly promote the technology using not subsidies but tax incentives to get that technology on stream that allows us to do things we need to do like steel making and other industrial processes without using fossil fuels to the extent that we are. Look, if you want to build a wind turbine, there's a lot of steel that uses a lot of energy to yeah. make that steel wind turbine and at the moment under current technology again Again, you need fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are going to act as a bridge. That's not to curry favour with the oil and gas lobby at all. I'm a big advocate and write lots about the shift to renewables just because renewables are, in the end, cheaper. They will be cheaper if we can get beyond fossil fuels, but you need fossil fuels as a bridge. It's a pantomime that's going on in Glasgow, really. It's literally, look behind you, you know. There was a fantastic moment. I'm sure you saw it when Joe Biden had a quick nap at exactly the moment a speaker on the stage said, this is one of the most important events in history. <laughs> He was off. He was nodding off. Leader of the free world was not listening at all. But Biden actually told delegates that the US would be leading by example. And we know he'd just been yelling at OPEC to produce more oil. We know that. We know that new data shows that the states' coal-fired power generation had leapt by 22% in the last year. And that's the first annual increase for coal in the in the states since 2014. I mean, who are they kidding? It's all smoke and mirrors. And another thing I came up with, Liam, which is just, you know, that they, they did manage to cobble together one of their achievements. I mean, Boris pops up every so often to say, oh, you know, we're now 5-1 down or 4-1 down. And they got this big deforestation agreement. We're going to reverse deforestation by 2030. But I looked up, I went back and looked it up. And in Paris in 2014, that's the Paris Accord of 2014, they said, guess what? We're going to reverse deforestation by 2030. And do you know how much deforestation they've reversed? None. 
not a silver birch, not one tree, nothing, not a twig, not, you know, not a leaf. So it's, I'm struggling to avoid the word bullshit. What's a nice word, a way of saying bullshit? But I actually think there's a lot of goodwill. I think many people in our country, I think people would like to do their bit. I was in a taxi the other day and the guy said, look, I went to look into electric car. I'd really like to do my bit. But he said, I can't possibly afford that. So I think, you know, instead of mandating masks in schools, how about we mandate that every child has to walk to school or cycle to school or at least take a bus provided by the local authority? There are so many actual practical things at a local level we could be doing. And then we got Jeff Bezos, you know, saying nature gives us life, but it's also fragile. I was reminded of this in July when I went into space. <laughs> you went into space you're saying to a climate conference when I spent a few hundred million going into space. Actually, I was going to ask you, Halligan, what does the Planet Normal rocket, what are we fueled by? We're fueled by genius and... <laughs> indignation. Uh, indignation, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and talking about genius and indignation, you had a mate who went to Oxford... And he's changed his will. Do you see what I did there, that little transition? Do you see that? They kind of think we planned it. We, we planned none of this, do we? We just talk. Have you thought of a career in broadcasting, Halligan? <laughs> it's never too late. Yeah, I mean, as, as a columnist, you're always just sort of nostrils are always twitching for, you know, which way the wind is blowing or which way the wind turbines are blowing. And a very good mate, actually... He emailed me and he said he'd updated his will recently. He and his wife had updated their will and he asked for his bequest to an Oxford college to be cancelled. And the solicitor said, oh, I've had an awful lot of clients doing the same lately. Those universities must be losing a hell of a lot of money. I thought that was really interesting, Liam. And I asked my friend Richard, why have you cancelled this bequest to your college? Obviously, he loved a college. He did a further degree there and he said, general wokery. Why would I want to support an organisation that's changed so markedly to something I don't recognise or understand? It's gone very quickly from a place that I loved and which I thought loved me to one where I now feel deeply uncomfortable and distinctly unwelcome. And I thought this was just a trend, Liam. I think a lot of our generation has had enough and we are quietly voting with our checkbooks and our direct debits. There was a fantastic letter. I don't know if listeners saw it in the Telegraph this week from a Charlotte Mackay. And Charlotte said, sir, I am running out of memberships to cancel. And I thought, you know, when you read what you think, yeah, too true. So I did a bit of digging and dozens of donors Owners have cancelled financial gifts to the University of Edinburgh after it renamed the David Hume Tower, named for the great philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment. He had to strike Hume from the record because of his comments on race made more than 250 years ago. And I, I found this great comment, actually. It's really interesting how the alumni are so out of step with some of these very woke, self-righteous institutions. And this guy wrote... Hume was cancelled in life by the Scottish universities for failing to fall in line with the religious tenets of his day. So I admire him in death now for having the same effect on the grandees of this new woke religion. Isn't that brilliant? So guys who were stirring up trouble, who were standing up in their day, anti-slavery, pro-female emancipation, many, many, you know, remarkable things. Yes, they were highly flawed individuals, as we all are. We are all humble sinners, Halligan, you know, even you. But this idea that you take them down, you write them out of history. And I think, you know, I think Imperial College is about to do the same to its Thomas Henry Huxley building. I just thought that the reaction, I thought the fact that there might be now, that the reaction to cancel culture might be cancel your direct debit and show the bastards. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio!
Well, with the spotlight on all things green this week and the failing powers and popularity of President Joe Biden, I thought it would be really interesting, co-pilot, to speak to a leading commentator in the States who talks our language quite literally. Steve Hilton is best known over here as Director of Strategy for David Cameron between 2010 and 2012. Hilton was that barefooted, T-shirted guru who steered the Conservatives towards hug a husky and what Cameron memorably called all that green crap. After Downing Street, Hilton relocated to the States when his wife joined Google and their family is now based in Silicon Valley. Hilton did return to the UK briefly to campaign for Brexit, upsetting his former boss when he pointed out that the civil service had always explained we'd have to leave the European Union to get immigration down. He and David Cameron have not spoken since 2015. Steve Hilton did publish a really interesting book called More Human, advocating smaller human scale organisations. In November 2016, he shocked an awful lot of people, Liam, when he announced his support for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in the presidential election. In the next year, he began presenting The New Revolution on Fox News, a show which is dedicated to something that Steve calls positive populism. Lately, he's been tweeting on a lot of subjects which are very dear to Planet Normal listeners, and I was very excited to get his take on current events. I should say, we recorded this interview with Steve Hilton before Glenn Youngkin won the governorship of Virginia for the Republicans, but a lot of what Steve had to say about the state of the Biden presidency did foresee that astonishing victory. Steve Hilton, every Sunday night you begin The Next Revolution, your show on Fox News, by saying this is the home of positive populism, pro-worker, pro-family, pro-community, pro-America. What do you mean, Steve, by positive populism? So the the origin of it really was after we saw um, in 2016 where those twin populist uprisings, as they would describe, both in the UK with Brexit, as you know well, and here in America with Donald Trump. And a lot of the commentariat I found immediately interpreted the the word populism as a negative thing and associated it instantly with racism and all sorts of other pejorative ideas. Meanwhile, the people who were making, who are on the side of those movements, whether it's Brexit or Donald Trump's campaign here in America, or even Bernie Sanders, you know, on the left, because because people argue that there's a populism on the left as well, although I would challenge that. The people making those arguments also would talk pretty negatively about their way. They would always say what they're against. You know, we're against the elites, and we're against uncontrolled immigration, and we're against, you know, the centralized government here in America, whatever it may be, they're against things. And I just thought on, on both those grounds, it would be helpful to articulate a more positive version of what I think is a really interesting movement. I remember thinking, actually, finally, this is a word that kind of matches what I would consider to be my political philosophy. I was never really comfortable with the word, you know, are you a conservative? Are you that? I, none of that, you know, there, I was always a bit, you know, there, there were elements of my views that didn't quite fit with the traditional philosophical framework that you'd associate with the, with the various labels that we had. And I thought, actually, this one makes sense to me, because to me, what it's all about is, and this sounds like a bit of a cliche, but actually, if you drill into specific policy errors, it starts to make sense. What it really captures is the idea of, of putting power in people's hands, that people should have power to direct their own lives and have the resources to do that as well, which is where it sort of veers away a little bit from traditional conservative or right of center thought. So I'd, I'd, to me, it made sense. I thought, this is great. But when I look around, it's either being completely trashed by the kind of people in the media and so on, or it's being it's being turned into something, you know, kind of a snarling, angry kind of thing um, by some of the people who are advocating for it. And actually, I want to say what it's what we're for. On your show this week, you delivered a, a, an absolute humdinger of a, of a monologue in which you compared Joe Biden's presidency to the Monty Python dead parrot sketch. This is an ex-presidency. Steve, why do you think the Biden presidency is deceased? The Monty Python thing, we, we wanted to use clips because I wasn't sure how well known that sketch is to an American audience. You know, pretty well known. I saw from the responses on social media, actually, Monty Python is very popular in the US, actually, so I thought it would go over well. Mm. The key point, I think, was that Biden, I mean, without going over all the history of how he got where he is, what's going on right now, the kind of 
top of the political agenda right now in America is Biden trying to pass massive sweeping legislation, which includes some things which are pretty uncontroversial and supported across the political spectrum, mainly in the category of infrastructure. And there's a big bill on infrastructure, which actually has some Republican support. And they're trying to get that passed because, as people will know, in America, the president got the separation of power. So actually to pass legislation, it's Congress that does that, not the president. Although the president ran on a particular platform and the Democrats all got behind that and now they control both chambers of Congress. And so you'd imagine that they could get it done since they control all the key parts of the elected bits of the uh, system in Washington, the presidency in both chambers of Congress. So you've got the infrastructure bit, you know, which which they've been working on for months. And then this other thing, which they call the social social safety net bill or whatever, which is a massive extension of the welfare state in America. They've been trying to get this through. And what's been really interesting is actually seeing that Biden is pretty much a bystander in the whole process. And they've got these various kind of deadlines they've set over the last few months. Each one has come and gone. They haven't got the support. They can't get there. They can't agree. And therefore, they haven't been able to get this passed because they don't have a majority. And then for me, the final uh, example of, of the weakness of Biden's position was that he went up to Congress on Thursday. He delayed his trip to Europe because he went to Congress in person. He went up to Capitol Hill, pretty rare, and addressed his party and, and begged them basically to pass this legislation. Mm. He said, if it's my presidency's on the line and the party's on the line and our ability to win next year in the midterm elections and our ability to win again in 2024, it's all on the line and you've got to do this for me. He begged them. And basically, he left the room and they all said no. The progressives who really control the, the process just said no. We're not going to do it. And they didn't pass it. That's the left of the Democratic Party, right? The left of the Democratic Party, exactly. The, the, the sort of the most famous and prominent person in that group in the Senate would be Bernie Sanders, who's pretty well known, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. And you think, hang on, this is, and it's the second time he's done this. He's gone up there to beg them. They said no. He's got no power. What actually happens in the real world yeah. happens completely irrelevant yes. to what he decides to get involved in. And so I thought, you know, they'll end up passing something, I'm sure they'll agree, but it won't be because of anything he's done. And so, so you, you think said actually, he's, what, you, you've pointed out that he's physically and mentally, I mean, he was, we saw him dozing off through the keynote address today at, at COP26. I mean, how bad is that, Steve, do you think? It's, oh, it's so embarrassing. And people go, oh, don't be mean. You know, he's an old man. You can't call him senile. I do call him senile because he clearly is senile. He, he muddles things up the whole time. And see, that's not an insult. It's a condition that affects all of us. I'm sure it will affect us. Yeah. Um, if it hasn't already at certain times of the day. And, and also, I say, hang on a second. He's the one that put himself forward for, for one of you know one of the most high profile and demanding jobs in the world, if not the most. So, like, he's the one that said, "I can do this." If people used to mock Ronald Reagan for his mental lapses, this is much, much worse, and it happens almost every single time he's in public. I mean, they keep him away from the press. They won't let him answer questions in a press conference. Even in his scripted remarks, he clearly loses his train of thought. Um, he did. He was in, in front of an audience the other week. Uh, CNN did a town hall where he was answering questions from the audience, literally in the middle of, you know, forgetting. He was talking about the supply chain crisis and, and all of that. And he'd been on the, he'd, he'd been bragging about how he'd been on the phone all week with the people who run the port of Los Angeles, where most of the goods come in from Asia, and, and the neighboring port of Long Beach. He, he forgot the second one. And there was this absolutely unbearable moment where he literally just looked at his feet on, on stage and starts going, oh, 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 what am I doing here? And you just think, yeah, that, you know, half the country is asking that. It's really embarrassing. Steve, you were known as a quite an eco-guru when you were David Cameron's advisor, hug a husky, what David Cameron famously called all that green crap. You're now taking a pretty brutal line on COP26. You you said to describe it as the virtue signaling frenzy of the utterly pointless Glasgow COP26, the total incoherence of the left establishment's climate agenda becomes more and more embarrassing. Can you give Planet Normal listeners some examples of the contradictions that you see and, and and did you change your mind or did you never believe in it in the first place? I do believe in it and it's a per perfectly fair point to make because it was a really big feature of what we argued and I was absolutely part of that 
there was a slogan, we used to vote blue, go green. I still believe in that. Here in, in America, I would say vote red because the colors are switched with the parties. In fact, on my show, I've made the case many, many times that, that Republicans, instead of dismissing the whole environmental argument, should get engaged in, in it with positive solutions. I think I'd say is like the slogan was vote blue, go green, not vote blue, go dumb. And I think that a lot of these policies that are now being pushed are just you know, g- genuinely stupid and self-defeating and don't actually advance the cause of protecting the environment. We'll get to a couple in, the, in a second, but the other thing I'd add just as an overall point is that one of the things that I very much saw as being part of that, a whole environmental push, not just the climate change argument, that's not the only thing that matters about the environment. Yeah. I also thought, and we can't, we, we talked about often, you know, the local aspect of that, you know, green spaces and the countryside and, and conservation and protecting ecosystems and keeping your local park clean and, and all of that. And that's part of it too. And of, of course, there are things that where they overlap, where the climate agenda, as it's now called, overlaps with that more local human aspect of looking after the environment. But I think that it, it's become so dominated by the kind of activist green crusading zeal for climate change, it excludes all that stuff, which I think people can relate to. So that's a sort of general point. Specifically, and again, I my, my focus is very much is in, in America, but if you just look at the policies that are being pursued in the name of this climate agenda, it's so incoherent and self-defeating. I mean, the most obvious example is that since Biden was elected, and that, you know, they do have, although legislation, as I mentioned earlier, it's passed by, it has to be passed by Congress and state legislatures. The executive branch, the presidency has a, a huge power over the agencies of government and regulation and so on. And, and they've used those levers very powerfully to clamp down on domestic oil and gas production. And actually, that's a huge part of the US economy and actually a very helpful part of it with respect to curbing emissions because as some some have put it, America is is basically the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. And because of the expansion of that industry during the Trump years, US emissions were actually falling. And that's now, that whole process has been put into reverse because they've clamped down on domestic oil and gas production. They're blocking the construction of pipelines. They're not issuing new permits to explore for new leases. They've, they've created a, a, a chilling environment. There's no new investment going in. But that hasn't resulted in lower emissions. What it's actually resulted in is an energy shortage. So guess what they're doing? The Biden administration at the same time as clamping down on domestic production literally has gone to OPEC to beg OPEC to pump more oil from places that actually have lower environmental standards and higher emissions than if it was done here in America. That's just the most glaring example. But if you go down the list, so many of the things that are put forward as part of this climate agenda actually make no sense and in many cases hurt the environment. So for example, they want to make us more reliant on less reliable energy, solar and wind are the ones that are constantly cited. But if you look at the actual process by which those things are produced, first of all with solar, the main ingredients for solar panel are carbon and slave labor from China. That's the main place where these panels are made as as of now. And so how is that advancing a green agenda? And the big point that is omitted, and here I have changed my view, and I'm going to be very open about it, is nuclear power. Because if there's one source of energy that everyone ought to be able to get behind, because it's clean and reliable and produces good jobs and so on, is nuclear energy. And yet here in America, certainly, the the climate lobby and the Democrats who basically do whatever they want are absolutely implacably opposed to nuclear power. And you've got governors, for example, here in California, Governor Newsom just about to shut down a nuclear plant that produces 10% of California's electricity in New York. I, I believe they've now closed down a plant that was producing 25% of New York State's energy. Where are they going to get that from? They don't have the capacity to suddenly turn on solar and wind to meet that gap. It's going to come from importing oil from Saudi Arabia. That's what's happening in California. They're closing it down here and importing it from Saudi Arabia. The whole thing is complete madness. You said that there was something truly revolting about these global summits, talking about useless leaders in quotes like Biden, Macron, Merkel, Johnson, yucking it up at lavish banquets, (laughs) you know, and then you contrasting that with the working people who I think that's very much an issue here in the UK of who's going to be pay- who's going to be paying for this stuff out of their vastly increased domestic 
gas bill. Steve, you sound really disillusioned with the political class that you once belonged to. Is that how you feel now? Oh, de- definitely. I, d- I did a speech to um, a group of students at Stanford University. And while I was trying to explain what they should do in order to advance the ideas that I believe in, in terms of you know put, putting power in people's hands and so on, is that you've got to get in there, get into the elite, and then become a traitor to your class. And that's what I now proudly describe myself as, a traitor to the elitist class of which I'm clearly a member. I think that particularly on that summit, I don't know. I mean, maybe that was a bit. I, there, there's something about the actual photo. It was the banquet they had in, in uh, one of the palaces in Rome. It was so obscenely lavish. And of course, these buildings are beautiful and historic and so on. But, you know, we're paying for them to have this meal, you know. And it was just, there's something at a time when, the, you know, people literally can't find basic necessities and groceries and are struggling to pay because inflation's going up. I don't know if that's an issue in, in the UK. Massive issue here now in America. And so people are really struggling. And then there, and yucking it up, by the way, yucking it up is a phrase I hadn't heard until I came to America. I absolutely love it. I use it at every opportunity. I think it's a brilliant (laughs) phrase. Talking about being a traitor. So after leaving Downing Street, you had a period in academia in the States. And when you came back to the UK to support the Brexit campaign, you talked about the Conservative government's failed immigration target. And you said, Steve, that civil servants had warned years ago that the target would never be met without leaving the EU. I mean, that was a double whammy then for your friend and former boss, David Cameron, wasn't it? Do you have any regrets now about what might be perceived as an act of disloyalty? And do you think David Cameron was really a Remainer? (laughs) Well, you know, back in the day when we were just starting out in conservative politics, he was, you know, one of the most Eurosceptic people you know, I, that I knew. And in fact, he was, I mean, if you look at his, the speech he made when announcing the referendum, I mean, that's a very, very uh, Eurosceptic speech, very critical of the EU for all the reasons that I was. Uh, we were told all the time that this was the most important decision for decades, more important than any individual election and so on. And that's that's how I took it, which is that this is really important. Yeah. I do have a perspective on it um, and I feel strongly about it. And so I absolutely don't regret weighing in. I mean, at that time, it wasn't clear to me that we were going to be staying in America. So now I'm here, I'm a citizen, you know, that, you know, we moved here nearly 10 years ago. So I don't really weigh in on UK politics anymore. And so if it was happening again, I wouldn't do that. No. Yes. Do you feel sad about the your friendship with David Cameron? I mean, do you, you know, you had those very intense period of time together campaigning. Do you, do you feel sad now that it ended as it did? Well, I don't, I, I, I was always say, I, I, I'm not sure I'd use the word ended. I've always said, you know, I, my door's always open. There's no hard feelings on my part. And, you know, hopefully that's, you know, that'll be reciprocated. I read that you haven't spoken to him since 2015. Is that, is, does that sound about right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. You were pretty scathing when George Osborne became editor of the Evening Standard while remaining an MP. You said it was, quote, the worst example of revolving door syndrome. Steve, how do you change that political system that's dominated by, you know, very, very successful, intelligent careerists? What do you think? It's really tough. And it's a huge issue here, actually, much more so. I mean, one thing that you learn pretty quickly here when you get get involved in the political scene here in America is that it's it's actually much worse. That revolving door syndrome, it's so it's so deeply embedded here in America, classically in the what's described as the military industrial complex. I mean, you you know, right now the defense secretary, um, Lloyd Austin, was previously a general, and when he stopped being a general, he went to join one of the biggest arms manufacturers, Raytheon, and now he's back at Defense Secretary buying stuff. And that's just that's just one example. I mean, it's it's absolutely riddled with it. In my, in my last book, I in, in which was called Positive Populism, I I did put forward some ideas for that, including just a complete ban on playing both sides. You know, you have to choose. You have to be one or the other. And I I have I've also said I think that you could look at I mean, one of the temp, one of the things that people you know one of the things that drives this is that. The, the you know the financial parts of, of of being in government and politics you know they're tempted because you get so much more money in the private sector and I think well okay we could look at paying people more and so on I think also term limits are a, are a great way to kind of disrupt the way that people just get so embedded that's where you can only serve 
a certain number of years in a legislature and so on. I just think there's a lot of a lot of quite specific reforms you could make. But I think the biggest one here in America, because the re- the really pernicious thing is the connection between political donations and policy outcomes. You literally buy the outcomes you want. You've also got the other part of this, which is overlooked, which is the unions, the union money, the the, the government unions. And that relates absolutely to the way that, for example, the policymakers basically did whatever the unions wanted in relation to the pandemic and closing of schools here in America for so long because the unions wanted it. And so I just think that on every level, you've got to stop that. And and again, the, the, the specific thing that I, the, the way I've tried to frame it is this idea of conflict donors, which means you should you should not be able to vote on any legislation that affects anyone who's given you money. And that's something that you could operationalize at every level of government. <laughs> you know, they don't want to do it because it actually goes against their interests. But there's a way through it, which is to massively increase the proportion of political donations that come from small dollars, which is why, actually, the, I started the business I started, CrowdPack, which is a crowdfunding platform for political donations to make it easier for people to run for office without relying on big donors or the party machines. And in fact, you know, we had pretty big success with that. And ironically, perhaps mainly on the left, particularly after Trump's election. And we found CrowdPack, the company I started, became somewhat of a fundraising base for all the kind of resistance candidates who are fighting the Trump terror. Um, Many of them got elected to Congress who started out on CrowdPack. So I think you can do it but it's, there's not one thing that's going to end the corruption. You're never going to end it for good. But it, I mean, it's pretty obscene the way it works right now. Finally, you've said that Biden is a deceased parrot. Do you think that um, Donald Trump can fly again, Steve? What do you think? Well, I think that there's no question that he wants to. <laughs> I don't know whether he'll be able to. But the way I, I, I sort of frame the question is, look, there's two rounds he would have to go through in 2024, the Republican primary. Mm and then the general election. If you look at the Republican primary, assume he wants to run. He, I'm, I'm certain he wants to run. I think that there's no question he will run unless, you know, he's himself a speculator, unless there's kind of a health issue that prevents him. There's no sign of that. He looks to be as certainly full of energy as ever. So you think, well, who can beat him in a Republican primary? It's very difficult to see who would beat him. So I think if he enters the Republican primary, you have to assume that he will be the Republican nominee. So the next question is, who's who's he going to face in the general election? It's it's inconceivable to me that Biden will want to run again. But, you know, let's assume he does. I think that given the, the state of Biden, not just physically and mentally, but also what's happening in the country. I mean, just yesterday, a devastating poll was published. I mean, he's completely lost con- the confidence of the country. You know, 71% of Americans saying the country's heading in the wrong direction, including nearly half of Democrats. Wow. He's wildly unpopular. And so you've got to assume that Trump w- would beat Biden again. But then I, I assume that Biden wouldn't run again. So again, who would be the candidate? that would beat Trump. I mean, Kamala Harris, the vice president, doesn't seem to be, you know, she's she's widely considered to be completely failing in her role. In the end, it's a choice between the different candidates. And actually, the final point I'd make is that if you wanted to get Donald Trump reelected, you would go about it exactly the way that Biden is right now. All the things that are going wrong speak absolutely to the arguments that, that are the best and the most natural fit for Trump, particularly the fact that you've got this humanitarian crisis at the southern border with Mexico, wave after wave of, of illegal immigration that speaks to his focus on that. The fact that the economies really seems to be entering a downward spiral. His economic arguments always resonated. You know, I think that that actually it's all being set up perfectly for him to come back if he wants to. Steve, I know listeners would find a lot to enjoy in your show, The Next Revolution. I've certainly been playing back through the monologue. I find them on YouTube and I have to say you speak fluent planet normal. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming aboard the rocket of right thinking and explaining everything to us so well. Please come again. Very interesting interview, Alison. Steve Hilton's parents were immigrants to the UK from Hungary. He got a bursary to an independent school. He battled his way to Oxford. He feels to me very much like a planet normal kind of a person. I talked to him for a long time. We just got a part of the interview there. He has a lot to say that I think resonates with our people. This Next Generation show he does on Fox News begins with this, you know, very striking, this is the home of positive populism, pro-worker, pro-family, pro-community 
pro-America. And I think Steve was, as he explained, was very angry that populist became this term of abuse, didn't it? Both in the UK over Brexit, when people were, populism was meant to say, who are these ignorant fools who toothless crones from kind of Darlington and my part of the country. They don't know what they're voting for. People voting for Trump, oh, they were populist. And it and it became a dirty word. And I think Steve Hilton, very interestingly, is rehabilitating populism by saying it's a positive thing, you know, love for country, love for family, love for community, pro-workers getting a fair deal. All these things, they shouldn't be spoken of in disparaging terms by an elite. And as we've just seen in the last 48 hours, Liam, we're now seeing the resurgence of the Republicans in Virginia. I think it is pretty uncontroversial what Steve Hilton said, that the polls have gone against Joe Biden and indeed the vice president, Kamala Harris, at least for now. It's not at all clear to me who the Democrats are going to put up to contest the next presidential election in 2024, though it's pretty clear the Republican establishment, they have a kind of love-hate relationship with Trump. They're going to have to, they'll really have their work cut out for him not to be the presidential candidate for what they say in America, the, the GOP, the grand old party. He's very, very popular on that side of the aisle. He controls a lot of the party's apparatus, if you like. And Steve Hilton strikes me as somebody not unlike ourselves, Alison, who tries to be thoughtful and research, who comes from a modest background and finds himself or herself talking to the great and the good and our leaders, and yet feels a slight aversion, a slight repulsion to what it takes to be a frontline politician, the hypocrisy, the two-facedness, basically the overreaching of one's ambition over one's intellect, if you like. He is a very clever guy. I can confirm that from talking to him over the years. And I think that came through in the interview that you did with him. But his kind of aversion to frontline politics, I think, really shone through in that interview. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send every week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We've had some fantastic ones recently. Here is Moira bringing a very interesting angle on climate change. Moira says, I was born in 1951 and grew up in a terraced house. Central heating was a future dream. We had a coal fire in the middle room, whilst the front room with all the best furniture was closed off for special occasions. My first experience of a bath was a tin one brought in from the coal house on a Friday evening and filled from the kettle and water boiled on the stove. She could be describing my grandparents' house, Liam. The rest of the week, it was a wash in the sink, Face, fanny and feet. Excuse me. Steady on. (laughs) Steady on. We weren't allowed to describe the middle one in South Wales, I could tell you. Then we went really upmarket and had a bath in the kitchen with a board over the top and a curtain around. Still, only on a Friday. That was also when you changed your navy knickers, vest and liberty bodice. When my brother got married, his bedroom was converted into a bathroom. Absolute luxury. The house was so cold that we had ice on the inside of the windows. I can remember jogging on the spot whilst cleaning my teeth because the lino underfoot was freezing. I was never in the whole of my school life driven to school. As the youngest of four, I was quite spoiled and my mother used to lay my grammar school uniform on the hearth to warm up. Now, when I listen to my adored grandchildren bemoaning the fact we have destroyed their planet whilst they order a latte on Deliveroo on the latest phone that is super glued to their hands, I despair. I have sympathy for the eco-warriors, but no patience. Their methods are antagonistic and unrealistic. What has happened to reason debate? As for Boris and COP26, I have never in my whole life witnessed such blatant hypocrisy. Very kindest regards to both you and Liam for a reasoned and sensible podcast. P.S. Worcester, where I live, floods pretty much every year. There are bricks on the wall by the cathedral recording flood levels. The highest one was 600 years ago in 1400. Well said, Moira. This one is from Melanie. Dear Alison and Liam, after listening to this week's podcast, I felt compelled to write to you with a health situation affecting my family. 
My 11-year-old granddaughter had her first dental checkup since the start of the pandemic a few weeks ago. The dentist referred her to a specialist to see if she could get a brace fitted to correct an overbite which could affect her in later life. She has just visited the specialist who said she does indeed need a brace but that because of lockdown she will have a minimum wait of 18 months and by then if she's had a growth spurt it may be too late for it to be successful. The other option we were told, pay £1,900 to go private and she can have it done next week. My God. I'm incandescent with anger. We have a small family scaffolding business that's operated throughout the pandemic. We pay a fortune in personal and business taxes. But for what? When will the NHS do its job and protect us? We're a fit, healthy family. We rarely use the NHS, preferring to keep ourselves healthy through exercise and balanced lives. We've all had COVID recovering with no help whatsoever from the NHS. I will never again restrict my freedoms, says Melanie, to protect this institution that can't even help the youngest members of my family. I've had enough. They can stop me going to the pub, concerts, sports venues, but they will never, ever stop me seeing my family again. Sorry for the rant. I do look forward to Thursdays and Planet Normal. Thank you, Melanie. What a fantastic rant, Melanie. Now, Liam, we've had a lot of emails about this, my story about cancelling your direct debit to express dissent. Adrian says, I changed my will to cancel a sizable bequest to the University of Oxford, leaving a greater gift to Battersea Dogs Home. I'd rather help more dogs than subsidise anti-intellectual zeal. Here's one from Peter. I love Planet Normal. Your podcasts are so refreshing. Please keep them going. One way of solving the current issue of some GPs not seeing patients face-to-face would be to adopt the Canadian model, where doctors are paid by the number of face-to-face meetings with patients. We lived in Canada for 20 years and it works well. By contrast, in the UK, GPs are paid by the number of patients they have on their books. That encourages them to have as many patients registered with them as possible, but to see them as infrequently as they can. Always look forward to Planet Normal. Thank you from Peter. And a quick one from Tiff. Planet Normal's my go-to podcast. If you were running the country, Alison and Liam, making decisions would be in a much better place. Can you imagine? You don't pretend to know everything, but you interview a lot of people who do know an awful lot. The most critical thing is that you look at the public stats for what they are without bias or an agenda. You're keeping the debate going in this country, a debate which across much of the mass media has largely disappeared. Many journalists, says Tiff, should be ashamed of themselves, driving fear into the hearts of so many families Thank you again. And here's Pam. Hi, Planet Normal. I am writing to you with complete and utter anger. Halligan, there's there's an me, Pam. Everyone, everyone is uh, a lady after your own heart. Complete (laughs) and utter anger. Pam, I am there. Complete and utter anger. Yucking it up, as we now say. Pam says. (laughs) My local authority has reintroduced face coverings and other, quotes adjustments for secondary age children, or they recommend which schools are enforcing, in other words, cajoling the more strong-willed kids in my local area. I could not believe the reasons why when I read their letter. Is it because the local hospital is overwhelmed? No, it isn't. It is because many adults who are not ill are taking time off work, which is affecting local education and NHS services. What's the local authority's answer? Test more people who are not ill in the hope it stops people staying off work who are not ill. When is this farce going to end? Sorry for the lateness of this email, but I'm currently having a terrible night with my 12-year-old who is panicking about school tomorrow. She's been diagnosed with medical anxiety, something she never had at all until last year. Thank you for taking the time to read this. An exasperated mother of three, Pam. Well, Pam, thank you for writing to us. And this is from John Joe. I stopped listening to Radio 5 Live years ago. Planet Normal's appointment listening. Alison's rants and anecdotes are splendid. And it's great to have an economist who speaks human like Liam in my ear once a week. And we don't go to prison if we don't subscribe to The Telegraph. Nikki Campbell says, John Joe, do one. Alison and Liam, crack on. (laughs) 
Not that co-pilot's got a bee in his bonnet about Nicky Campbell and his insult or anything. (laughs) Two shorts to finish on the subject of the great green era we are living through. Septimus is responding to the suggestion on Sky News that people eating grasshoppers, crickets and mealworms may be a solution to the climate crisis. Ugh, says Septimus, like being forced to eat Aldi own brand Alpen. And David... My takeaway from COP26 is fly by private jet. Uh, spot on, David. We're, we're, we can all club together and get one for the planet normal listeners, Liam. How much are you putting in? <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, I'll put in the fee I get for this podcast. All right. <laughs> so that's it from planet normal on that bombshell. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison. Oh, it's too hard to pick. Honestly, they're absolutely fantastic. I'm going to be totally controversial and do something that Simon Cowell sometimes does, Liam. I'm going to say one to Moira for the beautiful memory of growing up in a terraced house in 1951 with ice on the lino and one to Melanie for her wonderful, angry and evocative one about her beautiful granddaughter being unable to get dental treatment in our NHS. So Moira and Melanie, please write in with your addresses so Theodora Leloudis, our editor, can send you a highly coveted Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. This Thursday, I'll be discussing everything Steve Hilton had to say. Should be really interesting. Just find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I'll reply from 11am to noon. It is you, our fantastic Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners, who do make this podcast. We learn so much from you. And please continue to be in touch. Certainly true. Keep emailing us. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>